morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Copper Hills, and I'm so glad to welcome you this morning. Welcome to you, those that are watching online as well this morning or maybe later in the week. We're glad that you're joining us that way as well. We wish you were here. Wish you could be here. So, anytime, right? Um, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, by the way, I would like that opportunity. I'm going to be in the plaza area right after the gathering. And so if you'll stop by and introduce yourself, I'd be really pleased if you would do that. So it's quite a sports week, right? Yeah, you, you very, one person is happy for the sports week. Yes. So we got Super Bowl happening, right? We've got uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open happening. Not so much enthusiasm for that. We got Kevin Durant coming. We gave our whole team away to get him. It's amazing. And apparently we have the equipment manager for the Dallas Cowboys as our next coach because nobody will coach our quarterback. Isn't that something? Yeah, quite a sports week indeed. Uh, I would ask you who you're rooting for in the Super Bowl, but I really don't care. Because I don't care. Our team won't be there. Our team's never there. Right? Sad commentary on our Cardinals. But, uh, hey, on a far more, far more serious note, you've been following the news and you know what's been happening in Turkey and in Syria. I read this morning that the estimates now are north of 30,000 souls will have died in that earthquake. And here's the tragedy. Uh, not, not only the loss of life and the grief and the mourning that real families like you and me are going through this morning. We sometimes don't think of it, but if you've ever lost someone that's precious to you suddenly, you know what that's like. And families by the scores are experiencing that. But here's the thing. Less than estimates are less than 2% of the population in those two countries, less than 2%, would identify themselves as Christians. And even that category of Christian in that part of the world doesn't mean somebody who has a personal walk with Jesus. It may just mean that's the religious flavor that they grew up in. And so here's a nation in grief without the hope of Christ. Without the hope of Christ. Um, and that's, that's the tragedy. And so um, in those kinds of tragedies, it's also an opportunity for Jesus through the through the small number of people that really do love him, to be the light of Christ. You see, we started as a very small movement, about 120 or so in a hidden little room someplace in Jerusalem, hiding for their lives. And we're here today because the move of Jesus cannot be stopped. And so Jesus, in that part of the world, that you care for so deeply, and you grieve with the families who grieve this morning, and you grieve even more deeply that there are so many that don't know you. So many that have gone into their eternity without you. For our brothers and sisters in that part of the world, would they be courageous and bold? Would you give them energy and opportunity to be you in that part of the world? For those that from around the world have come to rescue people, it seems so late in the day to still find live people, but Jesus, would you still make that possible? And then for the grieving families, would you be their comfort? Would they somehow look to you, Jesus? 
and find that you're more than they ever thought you might be or maybe never even knew you were. Would you do that for your fame, Jesus? Amen. Okay, um, last Saturday morning, I woke up and I found myself in Hawaii. I intended to be there. It wasn't an accident. Um, here's what happened. My, uh, my son and his daughter and three children were traveling to Hawaii for a conference. And my son contacted Elfie and myself and said, hey, we're going to bring our kids with us, your grandchildren. Would you be willing to come and uh, look after them during, through the day while we're at this conference? To which we said in like a millisecond, yes, for sure. Because you can put me anywhere in the world. If I'm with my children and my grandchildren, I'm good. Now, I'm really good if it's Hawaii, right? And so we had this wonderful opportunity to, to be there. And uh, surprising to me, I had an experience leading up to getting there. And while I was there, that was just an ordinary, everyday, garden variety kind of experience that I didn't think much of at the time. But as the week built, uh, it kind of left a deeper impression in my soul, in my life, the way I responded to it. That's all mysterious. You don't know what I'm talking about. So let me give you an example. So uh, I, uh, I flew to Lahui uh, a week, two weeks ago tomorrow. So a week ago this last Monday. And uh, air travel in our country right now is really interesting. Has anybody been on a flight that's been on time recently? <laughs> yeah, so you, you just kind of planned for it. I got to the airport earlier because that's how my travel arrangements work, and the flight's on time, I check that, and then I get there, the flight's still posted on time, but the ticket agent says, hey, sorry, flight from Dallas, weather, going to be 20 minutes late. Okay, 20 minutes, live with that. 20 minutes comes, another announcement, ah, you know, the flight's in the air now. Ah, uh, you got to be kidding me. Come on. Yeah, uh, we're going to be a little late. Okay, so an hour now. Uh, it's still marked on time. Still marked on time. Yep, you got to be kidding me. And uh, the flight's not there. And then just after like an hour uh, after we were supposed to leave, the ticket agent comes back on again and says, hey, uh, the flight should be here any minute now. We're pretty confident it's going to be here shortly. And someone in the, board, in the waiting lounge says, uh, it just pulled up to the gate. The plane, the plane, right? It's just pulled up to the gate. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. Like, how do you not know that, right? So it deplanes, we load up, and we get going. We're flying off to Lahui. It's a six, six and a half hour flight, something like that. Early on, the pilot gets on the, the speaker over the airplane. He says, folks, I'm sorry to tell you this, but there's rough air all the way to Lahui, all the way. It's six hours, 15 minutes of uh, uh, rock and roll. We're just going, and everybody needs to stay in their seat with their seatbelt buckled. You've got to be kidding. Nobody has a bladder that size. Nobody, right? And so nobody adheres to it either, by the way. It just doesn't mean anything. So we get close to Lahui. We're on our descent coming down. You can hear the engines kind of like wind down a little bit. The flaps change and we're coming in. And then all of a sudden he plateaus, levels out. And he gets on the pilot gets on the speaker and he says, uh, "Hey, sorry to tell you this, but there's a storm cell right over the airport at Lahui. We can't land. We don't meet the margins to land. So, just hang with us here. We're just going to circle once, and then it'll clear up. It seems to be moving on." And I go, "You gotta be kidding me!" So we fly, 
and we fly, and we fly. I, like, I think we're up there all day, just banking to the right. And finally, the pilot says, okay, so we've circled four times. This storm cell is not moving, and I'm running out of fuel. You got to be kidding. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're off to Honolulu. So nobody else in my family got to see Waikiki, but I got to see Waikiki out the window, right? We get into Honolulu, and we're an unexpected flight, so there's no gate for us to go to, right? So we sit on the tarmac, and we're idling. Forever. You've got to be kidding. My family's waiting for me. They've been there two hours waiting for me already. Finally, a gate opens up. We pull in. The pilot says, everybody stay in your seat. We're just going to splash a little fuel in the aircraft. <laughs> splash a little fuel? No, fill the thing up if you would. You've got to be kidding me, right? So he can't find a fuel truck because there are nine other flights that have been sent on to Honolulu as well. Finally, it's our turn to tank up. We pull up. Guy gives us credit card, I think, is what, how that works. And uh, loads up and says, we're ready to go. We just need some time to get a new flight plan. Shouldn't take but a few minutes. You've got to be kidding. We get our flight plan. We get out onto the runway. 20 minutes, wheels up, wheels down. We're in Lahui. Made it. Finally made it. Yeah, thank you. That's good. That's Okay. So I'm thinking, like, how can that happen? It took me 12 hours to get from my door to the resort right? You've got to be kidding, right? And so uh, one of the mornings, uh, I think it was the second morning I was there because there's three hours time change, your body clock's a little out. I got up really, 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 really early and I decided I'm going to go down to the beach and I'm just going to lay on the beach. And so uh, I did and it was one of the clear nights that we had and I lay there and I looked up at the canopy of stars and I said, you've got to be kidding you just got to be kidding. I understand why people camp up on the rim or find like the desert someplace because you don't see that with the light pollution of our city. Like three-dimensional star uh, sky, like stars in the distance, some twinkling, some not. I'm pretty sure I saw a weather balloon with Chinese letters on it. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I saw a streaking star. Like you go like, oh, wow, you've got to be kidding me. You gotta be kidding. I lay there for an hour just watching this amazing sight in the sky. Went for breakfast one of the Saturday on the Saturday with uh, my son. And we're in this kind of covered patio area overlooking the Pacific Ocean, the waves rolling in, the palm trees. It's just beautiful. But there's a storm cell right over top of us, and it is a legit thunderstorm. In fact, it's so legit. At one point, there's a there's a shot of lightning that just seems to go on forever, lights the whole place up like it's noon, and it, it seemed to just suck the air out of the room. You could feel the electricity, like that's how close it was. And then the thunderclap happened just a millisecond afterwards. It was enough to shake everything, suck the air out of my lungs. The lady who was carrying cereal back to her table dropped it. Like it's really, I go, you gotta be kidding. That's amazing. One of the other mornings, I was sitting on a patio at a patio table with my Bible open. And I was thinking how many times I had thought to myself, you got to be kidding. You were sick of hearing it, I know. <laughs> you got to be kidding, like disappointments. You got to be kidding at that starscape. You got to be kidding at thunder. You got to be like, you got to be kidding. It's just 
Like it's, it's, I set it to disappointment. I set it to amazement. I set in all kinds of things. I just thought, well, like it, life is like that. You've got to be kidding. Some of the disappointments that come, some of the extravagant grace we experience, you've got to be kidding. And so as I'm rolling this in my mind, I look down at what my Bible is open to, and it's open to this. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? The context of that, it's written by Paul, but he's quoting something from Isaiah from the Old Testament. And it's a section of the Old Testament. It's really worth reading Isaiah 40 sometime. Amazing. The nation of Israel has been captured. It is no more. It's been dispersed to other countries. And Isaiah is God's voice to the people. And he makes them a promise that God's got them in spite of no evidence that he does because they've rejected him. And there's not evidence clearly that God is with them and they wonder. And then Isaiah writes them and said, hey, by the way, you probably want to give God some advice on your stuff that's going on. He doesn't need your advice. He holds the sand of the whole world in the palm of his hands. And then he writes, like, so who has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him? And then this, but we have the mind of Christ. You've got to be kidding. No, hold on. What does that mean to have the mind of Christ? Would that possibly mean that we have the potential that we could think like Jesus? Does that mean that if we have the mind of Christ, that we could take the problems that we have, hold them in our hands and say, Jesus, you you know about those, you know how to handle those. I'm able to think like you about those stressors and problems in my life because I can, evidently, I have the mind of Christ. Does it mean that I can, I have the capacity to forgive and to view things that have happened to me with a forgiving heart the way Christ looks at the stuff I've done to him and forgives? Is it possible that that's what he's saying? Is it possible that I can do my family and my work and my money and my time with the, seeing everything through the lens of how Jesus sees it all. And I can actually do life like that. You've got to be kidding. Yeah, that's what he says. And I started thinking of the other, you've got to be kidding, kinds of passages in the Bible that are astounding to me. Here's one. If you were around a year and a half or so ago when we went through the shepherd's prayer, like the Lord is my shepherd, this is what it says. You remember Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. You gotta be kidding. Like, how much is that? That's everything. I lack nothing. Like, I lack nothing. That means maybe that if God's my shepherd and I let him shepherd me, if I don't have it, I don't need it. And if I need it, I'll have it. You gotta be kidding. I think that's what it says. Then there's this. This is Jesus' friend John, the one that self-declares himself, the one that Jesus loved. He's talking in this passage just before this about the enormity of God's love for people, how he didn't think it was too much to give up his own son for the sake of people, and that's just an expression of his endless, boundless, immeasurable love. And then he says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because if we're loved and we know who Jesus is, he's paid the price, he's atoned for our sin, we have no fear of judgment. That's all driven by his love. And then, by the way, in this world, you're like Jesus. Oh, you got to be kidding. No. That's what it says. You mean that we're, like we're, it's possible for us to live the kind of life with Jesus 
sheltered by his love, amazed by his care and his companionship and his tender heart for us, that we can live that way with other people who annoy us, who bug us, who tick us off, who disappoint us. Yeah, that's what we did to Jesus. And he evidently keeps loving us. You've got to be kidding. And in this one, a year or so ago, this became so personally significant to me that I've tried to kind of memorize it. But this is what it says. This is, this is Peter, aged, old, speak before I think Peter. Writes this, his divine love, that's his divine power, that's God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life in the present. You've got to be kidding. That's what it says. And how? Well, through our knowledge. That's not just intellectual knowledge. That's not just history. That's not just the story of Jesus in the Bible. It's all of those things. But it's more so a personal, interactive, intimate dynamic between him and me. So because I know him that way, he has called me by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he's given us the very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. What? You've got to be kidding. That I can increasingly participate in the natural nature of who Jesus is. Yes. You've got to be kidding. Now, do, do we live like that? Is that our reality? Or is this some kind of metaphor that God's giving just to go, boy, come on, you can do it. Way to go. Nuh-uh. It's way deeper than that. So how in all the world would we actually take these promises, these you-got-to-be-kidding promises, and make them real in our lives in everyday settings? It requires a decision on our part. Yes, a decision. But this decision has two interlinked, inseparable parts to it. The reason I emphasize that, and please listen carefully to that, one decision that has two parts that are inseparable, because I grew up, maybe some of you did, in an environment where this decision had half of it, just one part of it. And if you got that one part, though you were told of the second, it was optional. You could, you couldn't, didn't matter, as long as you got the first part right. What am I talking about? When I was a little boy into my teens, I was told this. You have lived your life in such a way, and I had to fully agree, in such a way that you've lived independent of God. You've done your own thing. You've disobeyed him. You haven't followed what he wanted for you. Call it sin. It's really more sinful behavior. But at the heart of who you are, you have a broken relationship with God. But if you'll humble yourself enough, either through desperation or seeing the glory of who he is, but if you'll humble enough, be humble enough to admit that to yourself and to him, then what happened on Good Friday on a cross just outside the city of Jerusalem will take effect for you, where he apparently died to pay the price of your independence from him and wants to restore a relationship with God. You're going to have to admit that, by faith believe that, and then you become, in the old school word, it's still a great word, born again. You ever heard that before? That all that's saying is you become a new person, literally spiritually alive. Where you were spiritually dead, you're now spiritually alive. And then I was told that if you do that, your ticket is punched for heaven. You're good forever. You're good on into eternity. 
I was never told there was another part to that question or that decision that was inseparable from the first part. Do you know what that is? That by becoming alive to Christ, I now am an apprentice of his. I belong to him. He wants to live by the power of his spirit inside of me in such a way that I increasingly think like him. That's his intent. But as a kid, what I was making the decision was just the first part. I wasn't in on the second because I didn't know that that was part of it. But I discovered two decades ago approximately that those were linked together and that the decision was as a whole, that I now am a new person. But that new person is about heaven coming to earth through God's spirit in me and I belong to him It's not just like a new kind of association. It's a new allegiance. I now am invited to live in his kingdom. We've said this before. A kingdom is simply this, that which I have say over. And all of us have kingdoms and queendoms, right? But what we're invited to is to say yes, to become a new person. And that kingdom or queendom that we have say over, to move it into his kingdom, where he has say over it. And then we increasingly experience the wonder of this increasing thinking like Jesus, being mistaken for him in the world. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need because what I thought I used to think I need, I don't think I need anymore. I I need something else that I have in Christ. It's a whole change. So the question would be, have, have you made that first part of that decision? Have something in your world separated those two into two separate ones that this one's going to come later, maybe after you die? Those are together. So how then, in the earliest days of the church, did that whole idea get communicated to the church? Because that was a new concept for them. In some ways, for us, it is too. So maybe the way we could figure out how this might work for us would be to go back to the first days of the church once it was getting established to see how they did it. And here's what we learn. We learn that this is a personal decision, but it's made in a, it's lived out rather, in a community of people. I think in some ways, just hold with me here for a second. I think in some ways we've taken this personal decision and we've made it a public declaration that I identify myself with this church or that faith or I'm this or I'm that, but inside it hasn't really taken hold. So I call myself a Christian, though I've never made that decision. So publicly, this is who I am, but privately, I've never made that decision. But I think what we also do, once we've made the decision, we kind of privatize our spiritual growth. That's my business. I'll do it my way. And it's not intended that way. It's intended to live together in a community of like-minded people who help us grow, hold us accountable, cheer us on, pray for us, care for us, love us, challenge us, do this second part of that question together. It's still a personal decision, and there's always a personal element to it. So if I'm just, someone else is reading the Bible for me, not, not enough. I have to have some personal like skin in the game But the context we see from the earliest days of the church is in a community of people doing this together, not isolated, 
together. Who do you have in your life that's walking next to you that is inspiring and aspiring you to greater view of who Jesus is and your walk with him and your depth with him? Who's helping you increasingly think like him? Who's helping you increasingly be mistaken for him? Who's, who's that person? Who's that group of people? And increasingly what I find is people can't identify anybody that's doing that. And that's not the model of the earliest days of the church. Can I show you the model of the earliest days of the church? Here it is. In Acts 2, early, early on, this is just months after Jesus' death and resurrection. It says, they, that's the followers, the apprentices of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who just couldn't help themselves and wanted to be part of that togetherness because they couldn't find that togetherness anywhere else. They saw the togetherness there and they said, I want in on that. It wasn't a dynamic marketing campaign. There weren't billboards and advertisements. The advertisement was what was happening together as a community of people. And that was the model that was here. It says they devoted themselves. That actually means, if you look at the original Greek, they were tenaciously committed to each other even when it was incredibly uncomfortable and dangerous. So it's more than just, I'm devoted to you. Until you don't make me happy and then I'm going to cancel you. No. Tenaciously devoted to one another, even when it was uncomfortable and dangerous. So what did they do together? Well, they took this larger community and they broke it up into smaller communities. You see it, it says that they met from house to house, right? What did they do? Well, they did at least these four things, maybe others. They spent time learning together, loving each other, doing things for people outside of their group and praying together. How do we know that? It tells us. This is what it says. On the learning side, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the 11 remaining of the 12. They lost one. Judas was gone, right? But these 11 that are left, what are they, what are they teaching? Are they memorizing Old Testament scriptures? Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. You know what they were teaching? We spent three years with Jesus, and this is what he taught. He came onto the scene, and he says, the kingdom of God is now available for people to live in because I'm present. And this is what the kingdom looks like because Jesus wall to wall talked about the kingdom. And this is life in the kingdom. This is who he is. This is what he's about. We lived with him. We walked with him. We heard him. We, he was taught by us. We saw him die. We saw him come back to life again. He's really alive. That's what they taught. And it changed their lives. And it changed the world. But they learned from each other. It also says they loved one another. How did they do that? They devoted themselves again to fellowship, to breaking of bread. They had everything in common. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together. That's, if you look at the biblical idea of table fellowship, don't have time to talk about it, but there was an immense significance to sitting at a table with a group of people, not just for the food. The, you know, the chicken schnitzel was great, but... Man, it's 
It's what we talked about together. But it was more than sitting around a table talking. They, they cared for one another. They were involved with one another. They helped pay each other's rent. They helped move one another. They were on the run. They were in danger for their lives. They protected one another. They took care of one another. That's what they did. And if you didn't, if you weren't part of a community like that and you saw how they functioned and your life is in danger or you don't have any help around, boy, do you want to be part of a community like that. You don't want to do life on your own. You want to be part of what they're doing. And this is what was so attractive to people. So they loved, they learned, they loved, and they did things together. What did they do? Buckle up. They gave to anyone who had need. Now, don't look at the first part. It says they sold property and possessions. I'm just saying it's there, okay? <laughs> That's devotion. That's a definition of devotion. I sell my stuff, I get rid of my stuff because you need it. And I'm going to give to you who are in need. They did things for people who were outside of their group, not just inside their group. They cared for people who didn't share their faith. They did what Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. They were persecuted. Like, what an amazingly attractive community, right? Learning, loving, doing, and then they prayed together. We know this simply because they devoted themselves, it says, to prayer. They prayed for each other. They prayed for their city, I would guess. They prayed for their protection. They prayed for the health of one another. But they prayed for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come from heaven to earth, that it would be done there. That's the model of the earliest church. Because Jesus was intent that disciples, apprentices, followers, learners of his would increasingly think like him and change the world because they were mistaken for him. Yes, it starts with the first half of that decision, but coupled with the second being in a community of people that do this together because we need one another. So, would you be interested to know that Copper Hills, 25 years ago, which by the way, March 15th, like a month from now, is our 25th birthday. We're going to celebrate that on the 11th and 12th. we got cool stuff happening. We'll tell you more about that. 25 years. But we didn't start like a gathering like this. We started with Alfie and myself and a small group of neighbors in our community, and we got together, and we did a life group together. And then that grew, and our home wasn't large enough, and we started a second one. And over the course of nine months, we're growing and we're caring for one another and we're praying for one another and we're learning together and we're making, I think, an impact in people around us. And then we pool our money and we rent a theater weekend to weekend for 500 bucks a weekend because there were more people that we could put in our two groups. And we just wanted to gather together with the great things that God was doing in our group. It was our group life that fed the large life. We went from circles to be in rows. Now what happens is the drift needs to go the other way, from rows to circles, because that's the model that Jesus gave, and it's just proven to be so helpful in growing people in their journey with Jesus. So practically, how do we do that? Well, many of you are in life groups. That's what we call them, just small communities here. Many of you are in those groups already. But our goal would be that everybody would be in a group, an identifiable group of people who can help them walk deeply into the kingdom with Jesus. Or maybe even the first half of that, be a place where discovery of who Jesus is can happen for them. 
So if you're not in a group and you would be interested, uh, right now while we're here, Pastor Paul is training our life group leaders through all three services this weekend so that next weekend, after having taken a week to think and pray about it, you can come back and sign up for a group. Our groups will all be listed for you and you can check them out. Uh, If you've got questions this week, contact the office. We'll get you information. But plan to come back next week and think through, if you're not in a group, what group do we want to be in? Secondly, there may not be a group that works for you time-wise or location or that kind of thing, but you've got a friend or two who walk with Jesus. Why don't you talk about it together and see if there isn't the nucleus of a new group that forms with your friends? Now, don't just go do it on your own because we want to help. Let us know if that's the case. We're going to connect with you. We have resources for you. We want to help you. We want to do what we can to support you. But that's a second way that you might just say, hey, like another couple of three friends. We hang out. We, we, want to, we want to be one of those communities. Or thirdly, I think there might be some within our church family who have led a life group before, but you don't know the need is there. There is a need. And it could just be this morning that God prompts you to go, hey, We've been kind of on the sidelines. That's a place that we can help. Will you let us know? We want to give you an idea of what our vision and values are of life groups. And it might just be, that's what God's prompting you to do. But I want you to know, this is not a public service announcement for life groups. It's not. It's taking that two-part question that's bound together. Say yes to Jesus. But when you say yes to Jesus, you not only say yes to forgiveness, mercy, grace, and a new life. You're saying yes to becoming a committed, devoted follower, apprentice of his. And that's where we increasingly think like him, are increasingly mistaken for him. And people go, are you kidding me? I want what you have. Cool. All right, let's let's wrap up. Let's stand if you would. I want to pray together. So Jesus, uh, this notion you had of not just uh, saving, redeeming, that would be like, enough because of what you, what that meant for you. But you're absolutely committed to seeing us grow deeply, deeply in love with you, to be able to receive the fullness of your love for us, and to do that together in small communities, and then as a large group, and to impact this community and the city and the world for you. We're all in with you on that. We are. So thanks for leaving an incredible model. We want to do it like you did it. So the outcomes are what you had. And as we do each week as we close, Jesus, could we ask you one more week that you would bless us and keep us? Would you make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us? Would you lift your countenance to us and grant us your peace? And we'll be grateful. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.